0: Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips.
1: Good evening, Cleveland. Welcome to another edition of The Advocate. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be talking in these first two segments to Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. And we're going to be talking about our, our now popular topic, COVID. Kevin, thank you for joining us.
2: Certainly, Nick. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, again, COVID, a year and a half, and still counting, Uh, how are we doing at this time in Cuyahoga County with COVID? Is it still a problem?
2: Well, it certainly is still a problem. We're still seeing, you know, high incidence of cases. Uh, We're still seeing a good bit of hospitalization. Our positivity rate is uh, still a little high. But in terms of the good news, we are seeing case counts go down. Uh, We have seen the hospitalization rates go down a little bit over the past few weeks. Uh, so things are improving. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a significant improvement at this point, Nick, but it is getting better incrementally.
1: With regard to death and ICU and ventilators and all of that, how are we doing?
2: Well, our hospitalization utilization rates, that's the terminology that we use at the Board of Health, uh, we, it really speaks to the capacity. Uh, and we look at pediatric beds, we look at adult care, and we look at critical care. And all three of those areas, we have seen a decline over the past couple of weeks, which is very encouraging. It wasn't very long ago when uh, hospital systems were maxed out and staffing was a concern and, you know, case loads were very high. Uh, But things are improving uh, slightly. Uh, The one thing to recall here is in terms of fatalities, uh, we have seen the rates, they kind of bob and weave a little bit depending on reporting. Because sometimes people will pass away, and it takes a little bit of time for their paperwork, so to speak, to get through the system. So those numbers can go up and down. Uh, you know, but, but in terms of the total number of deaths that we've seen, in our jurisdiction for the Board of Health, uh, which does not include the city of Cleveland, at, to date we are at 2,076 people who have passed away. So our thoughts are certainly with all of those families. Uh, who are, who are remembering those loved ones. And we really should remember those are very, that's a very significant number. Uh, the encouraging thing is now that, uh, with the onset of the vaccine, which we have really kind of enjoyed, uh, for the better part of a year, uh, COVID is now a vaccine preventable disease. So we're hoping that those fatality rates will continue to go down over time.
1: So uh, with regard to the numbers, uh, with regard to the cases that are being reported now as, new COVID cases, uh, do we have an idea of how we divide them between how many are from uh, unvaccinated people and how many are breakthrough with vaccinated people?
2: Uh, what we've seen primarily is when we talk in terms of hospitalization, Nick, uh, well over 90% of people who present symptoms severe enough to be hospitalized uh, are unvaccinated. So this really speaks to the need for people to you know heed the call and, uh, and take advantage of getting themselves vaccinated. Uh, you know, it's, it's been a long road to hoe here for us uh, over time, but as I said before, you know, we've had the vaccine since the last week of December in uh, 2020, and so you know, we've done well to get a number of people vaccinated, but unfortunately, all the people that we've seen, well, I should say all, but as I said, well over 90% of the people that we see hospitalized are unvaccinated, So uh, in terms of breakthrough cases, that's a very small percentage. That's a a small number. Uh, And the thing to remember there is um, we want to remind people that in public health, we always say that vaccines are not a 100 percent guarantee or a blanket of protection. They offer the best protection that we can devise scientifically, and they give us the best odds for not only survival, but minimization of symptoms and duration of symptoms. So it's much like when we talk about it at the Board of Health, we compare it to flu quite often in that you know, people can get the flu vaccine, but it's not a guarantee that they won't get flu, but hopefully it will just minimize their symptoms and the duration of time that they're ill. And then often you know, it will not result in, in people um, being sick enough to be hospitalized or to pass away.
1: Should people who feel ill with you know, the classic COVID symptoms, which are also classic symptoms for a lot of other things, should they still go out and get COVID, back, or COVID um, uh, tested for that if they think they might have something that could be COVID? How antsy should we well, be about this?
2: Well, I think in terms of procedure, if you feel like you're have, you are symptomatic with COVID-like symptoms, the first call I would make would be to your healthcare provider, because he or she may be able to interview you over the phone and drill down on that a little harder. Uh, because if you do have COVID and you are not vaccinated, it is uh, I don't want to say irresponsible, but it's problematic for the people that you're going to come in contact with to take yourself out into the general public and present with those symptoms and be face-to-face with people who would be testing you and other people that you might encounter at a testing facility. So I would say the first call should be to a medical provider for instruction. But certainly, uh, you know, we, we would encourage people to be, to be tested if they feel the need Uh, and also um, to take advantage, as we say, of the the vaccination sites. But, yeah, we we still want to encourage testing at all levels.
1: I I heard that it's best for everyone uh, to have an action plan, that if they come down with something they think might be COVID, they should plan out as to where they should go for their test and how to get that accomplished. Now, I understand the public libraries are passing out free testing kits Uh, And I'm assuming if someone could take advantage of that habit just in case they need it and do it themselves. If someone does a kit from the uh, library and they test positive, does the County Board of Health get to find out about that uh, result or how does that get counted?
2: Well, what we do is then, you know, if someone does test at home and they are positive, Um, Again, that first phone call will be to a medical provider to, you know, decide what sort of medical care they may need, um, depending on the severity of their symptoms. Uh, Just because someone tests positive doesn't mean that it gets reported to us directly at the Board of Health. Uh, But what we find is that all medical providers are required to report positive cases of COVID as part of their duty. So um, it is what we call in public health a reportable disease. There are several types of reportable diseases, and COVID is certainly one of them. Um, So if someone is found to be positive through a medical provider, then that will be reported to us at the Board of Health. And then we will dialogue with them in terms of contact tracing and and potential quarantine orders.
1: I understand that the Delta variant or the D variant is uh, very present around here now It's sort of uh, what's monopolizing maybe most of the COVID or making up most of the COVID cases. Does the vaccine work against COVID-19 Delta?
2: Uh, It does, but, you know, not being a a doctor or a nurse, I can't speak to percentages of efficacy or the sort of the outliers that could come along with that. Um, What I can tell you is in terms of what we talk about a lot uh, for having people, stressing the urgency to people to become vaccinated. When the vaccine was devised, it was against a certain you know number of uh, factors that, that rolled into what made COVID-19 what it was at that point when the vaccine was developed. As not enough people get vaccinated or not a high enough percentage of people get vaccinated, this allows the opportunity for the virus to mutate, as we have seen. We have seen several types of variants from the original virus. So as the virus continues to mutate, it does get a little further away from the original intent of the vaccine. Uh, And we see this with flu again, to make a comparison. Every year, scientists do the best they can to predict what strains of flu will be uh, covered in the vaccine. And once in a while, they don't get it quite right. Or there could be a new strain that develops between the time that they decide what those strains are and the time that people become vaccinated. So oftentimes it can be a little bit of a wild card. And that's, I think, the way we look at the variant, um, you know, but the point here is if people get vaccinated and we can reduce the transmissibility or the transmission of the of the of the uh, the virus, then we don't give it the chance to mutate, to grow into something different that, that potentially we might not be protected against. So herein lies our sense mm-hmm. of urgency in trying to get people vaccinated.
1: Do we keep track by zip code of those people who are vaccinated? What percentage? of those zip codes are vaccinated?
2: We do. Uh, You know, in Cuyahoga County, there are 52 zip codes altogether. And the range of vaccination percentage that we see is as low as 29% in a particular zip code in Cuyahoga County to as high as 82%. Um, So there are, in all, there are 15 of the 52 zip codes where vaccination rates are below 50%. So again, you know, we would urge people to go out and take advantage of, you know, the opportunity to, to get vaccinated. Uh, and, you know, you can call two one one if you're not sure where you need to go. You can go on get the shot. Ohio. coronavirus, or I'm sorry, get the shot. coronavirus. .gov, uh, or you can call us at the Board of Health at two one six two zero one two thousand and we'll be glad to, uh, you know, find a provider in your area. When, um, we, we, talk,
1: we have less than a minute to go before our first break here, but uh, I'll be asking about the uh, correlation between the zip code communities with a low vaccination rate compared to those with a high vaccination rate and whether or not knowing those rates of vaccination in those zip codes, do we see a correlation with uh, the number of new cases that are developing on a daily or weekly basis? But let's let's take a short break. We're talking to Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health about COVID 19. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK The Answer. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away.
0: Welcome
1: back, Cleveland. Here we for a second segment with Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. We're talking about COVID. Kevin, uh, as always, thank you for joining us. And we're we're talking about uh, trends with the vaccinations or not. My question was, where we know in a zip code that uh, one of the high numbers, like 80% or more uh, vaccinated, versus a zip code that's only about 29% uh, vaccinated. When we know those factors, are we seeing... uh, decreases in the high vaccinated communities and increases in the low vaccinated communities? Or or what do we know?
2: Well, I think there is a relationship between those two things, Nick, certainly. Uh, The one thing I would say right off the bat is when we talk about the zip code maps, we're a little cautionary with that in that the zip codes indicate to us the permanent residence of a person who's confirmed as a positive case. So it doesn't necessarily indicate where they may live full time, where they work, where they may go to school, other places they may go. Uh, I think those of us from Northeast Ohio, we know it's a very transient region. We all cross county lines, uh, not all of us, but many of us cross county lines regularly. So you know there is a little bit of that disclaimer to the zip code map. But your point is well taken in that areas with higher vaccination rates, we are seeing less cases. Uh, and, and areas with the lower vaccination rates, you know, we are seeing increases uh, in cases. Uh, so th- there is a direct relationship there. Uh, I can't really get into it with you statistically because I don't have that data in front of me, but there certainly is a relationship between those two things.
1: Well, as we we're talking about new cases, if we're picturing new cases coming in on a weekly basis. And if we, if we were to have a pie chart in front of us, looking at uh, all of the new cases that are coming in on a recent week, uh, what would that percentage be between those new cases that are of the unvaccinated versus breakthrough infections of
2: vaccinated people? Well, I think it would be uh, well in the high 90 percentile of people who are unvaccinated who represent new cases. Uh, and that is certainly not unique to us here in Northeast Ohio. That is really a national trend. As we get information from the Ohio Department of Health, from the CDC, and as we look at things, even on social media or news outlets, uh, it's very well publicized that um, clinicians are indicating that the vast majority of people who come in with symptoms that are severe enough to be hospital, that require hospitalization, are unvaccinated. So, um, you know, it's, it's very troublesome. Uh, and, and as I mentioned before, As the virus continues to mutate due to the lack of enough people getting vaccinated, which early on we heard it called herd immunity, right? Uh, You know, herd immunity is the the concept there. Yes. So so the concept there is that enough people get vaccinated to minimize or practically eliminate the transmission of the disease. And then if people become sick, they're very easily treated. Uh, I think we've seen this in the past. You know, those of us who are old enough, you know, polio, mumps, measles, rubella, all those things we've done a fantastic job of minimizing or eliminating those illnesses for the most part because everybody participated in the vaccination effort. So for us in public health, it's very troublesome for us to see this kind of division between the um, pro-vax and the anti-vax populations.
1: Well, On on that point, with regard to polio, I grew up during that era, and I remember the, not just fear, but the terror of polio uh, that everyone had. And the fact that Once we got to the oral vaccine, uh, it seemed like polio vanished almost overnight. At least that's what it seemed like as a kid. But uh, hopefully we can get rid of COVID-19 so we can really, truly be free from from that whole thing. What about boosters? A lot of talk about boosters. Uh, People who are eligible for boosters, are they coming out to get it or what's the official recommendation? Should you get it or could you postpone it?
2: Well, you know, we're, we're encouraging people to get it as soon as they are eligible, and there are varying degrees of eligibility. Uh, the, the foundational pieces are if you've had the Johnson & Johnson one-dose vaccine, then you need to wait at least two months after you've received that dose to then receive a booster. If you received a Moderna or Pfizer series of vaccinations, which were the two-part vaccinations, then you need to wait at least six months after the completion of those first two doses to get a booster dose. And we want to differentiate uh, for the audience, too, the difference between booster doses and a third dose. We heard talk, you know, of a handful of months ago about third doses being available. Those are available for people who have serious immunocompromised conditions. And those would be people who are transplant patients, people who are cancer patients, people whose immune systems are extremely compromised due to their physical condition. And they uh, most often got a uh, a full dose which was called the third dose. But those people, you know, those, we were not giving those out at the Board of Health. Those were directly handled between uh, the individual who was ill and their medical provider because the medical provider, he or she knows intimately, you know, the, the, the needs and the medical uh, history of that patient. So boosters are just sort of a fortification, similar to the thought of getting a, a flu vaccine every year, right? Uh, I just got mine last week. We always uh, talk about Halloween as sort of being a target date. Uh, for the senior population, it could be a little bit earlier uh, based on doctor recommendations. But, you know, the booster dose is, is similar in thought to that, to that annual flu vaccine is, you know, you should get it as soon as it's available to you uh, because it can only, you know, fortify your immune system and make you uh, as healthy as you can possibly be. Going into wintertime, going to the holiday season where we all tend to congregate uh, quite closely, uh, we have people coming in from different parts of the country. Uh, we usually have the windows shut. So, you know, we want to make sure that people are as healthy as they can be. And the combination of getting a booster, if you're eligible, and then also getting a flu shot provides you the best protection at this point.
1: A question with regard to the amount of vaccine, uh, of actual active ingredient that you're getting. Is a booster shot less than a full dose?
2: Uh, From what I understand, the Moderna, uh, if I'm correct, is a half dose of the original uh, with the Pfizer I'm not certain uh, what what the composition of that is um, but you know as I say the boosters are available uh, in all from all three of the manufacturers the Pfizer, the moderna and the Johnson and Johnson. Uh, the one thing that we I imagine we'll talk about this here in a minute with the um, child vaccines that are available those uh, the strength of those doses for the five to 11 year old population that's a one-third strength of the dose Uh, compared to a dose that those 12 years and older get. So there are different packaging that comes through. There are different containers that they come in because we really want to, it's not as if we take this normal adult vaccine and then we just sort of parse it out or dilute it or do anything to it. It comes as a separate entity so that we are very clear in the administration of vaccine which one we have and what audience it's intended for.
1: With uh, the question of boosters going back a bit as far as selecting the uh, the vaccine that you're going to take for your booster, uh, there's some discussion about whether you can mix it or do you match it with your prior one. Well, what's the best thinking right now on that point?
2: Well, uh, if we take one step back, even and we go back to, uh, you know, if you're getting the Moderna or Pfizer as your first series of vaccines, you want to make sure that you get two doses of Pfizer or two doses of Moderna. But when you're looking at boosters, uh, there is the, uh, the flexibility now to mix and match. So if you got a Moderna vaccine then your first two you know series for your first doses, uh, you can get a Pfizer booster. Uh, if you got the Johnson & Johnson, you can get a Moderna or a Pfizer booster. So there is now the flexibility to mix and match because it just, uh, apparently it makes, uh, you know, I'm not sure clinically what, what the, the thinking is behind that, but from what we know in public health, there isn't any danger involved with that. And then largely it's based on access because not everybody has the availability to get the same one that they got previously. So, um, excuse me, the guidance has changed accordingly.
1: Because uh, I I know of the three, Johnson and Johnson is one theory as far as I think that's attenuated virus versus the um, messenger RNA theories and formulations for the Moderna and Pfizer does, does it matter much if you had Johnson and Johnson now you switch to the uh, the mRNA type of a vaccine?
2: Uh, apparently not. Based on the guidance that we've received, we we did get the green light, so to speak, as far as you know it being permissible for people to mix and match.
1: A frequently asked question also is, and I still think it's the subject of maybe misinformation. Does the messenger RNA vaccines change or alter an individual's personal DNA?
2: Absolutely not. Uh, there is that is just a, a rumor, uh, and that there is no validity to that statement. Um, from what I understand, the mRNA process has been around for. Several decades. Uh, it's just that it's uh, you know it continually got refined since its original conception, and now on a large scale, uh, the COVID pandemic was really the first opportunity to roll this out in mass. So this was uh, it was by no means experimental. The mRNA process. It is well documented that it is a valid delivery source. It's just that it's now gained high profile for the first time through the COVID pandemic.
1: Well, very good. Well, we're out of time. But uh, Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, thank you so much for joining us and giving us an update. We'll talk to you again next month and find out where we are yet. Thank you. That sounds great, Nick. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate on WHK. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking about Cuyahoga County and the Cuyahoga County executive position coming up for re-election next year. And with us tonight, we have Lee Weingart, candidate for that position. Lee, thank you for joining us.
3: Thanks, Nick. It's great to be back on the radio.
1: Yeah, welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, I was correct. The election for that position
3: will be next year. Yeah, the primary is May of 2022, and the general election will be November of 2022. So we're about 13 months away.
1: Well, very good. Well, for people who don't know Lee Weingart, tell us a little about your background. And You've been involved in elected office before. Tell us about that.
3: I have been. So back when I was 29 years old, uh, in the mid-1990s, I served as county commissioner, the last Republican to serve as county commissioner, back when we had a government of three commissioners and other elected officials. Of course, today we now have a county executive and a county council of 11 members. We made that change in 2010. So it's kind of a homecoming for me. I'm going back to county government after 25 years of being in the private sector, uh, but I'm going back to run for county executive, which is now the single executive as opposed to the old three-headed executive we had when we had county commissioners.
1: Well, the time went by fast, and, uh, boy, we were it all did. young
3: back uh, in those days. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. When I was county commissioner back in the mid-'90s, we faced a big problem with the Cleveland Browns. We needed to find a way to convince the Browns to stay in Cleveland or at least bring a team back to Cleveland. And so I worked closely with then-Mayor Mike White, and we worked with the citizens of Cuyahoga County, and we got them to agree to an extension of a small tax on alcohol and tobacco called the SIN tax, That extension passed by a margin of 72%, which was the biggest margin of any tax in Cuyahoga County history to that point. We took that to the NFL as evidence of our support for professional football in Cleveland. Lo and behold, we got a team back uh, in 1999. We've struggled for a long time with that team, but I'm happy to say that the Browns look like a really good team this year. Um, But we did that because we relied upon the citizens of Cuyahoga County. We gave them a voice, we gave them a choice and they chose the right way, and they got football as their reward. So I'm very proud of that accomplishment back when I was county commissioner.
1: Well, very, very good. Well, the years have gone by. You left government. What have you been doing between then and now? And uh, thank you for coming back into politics, but uh, why are you coming sure. back? What, so, what's your motivation?
3: Uh, so, so um, you know, when I left county government, I had one child. I now have three. They're all adult children. Um, I have, for the last 20 years, been running a a firm that I founded. Uh, It's the biggest federal and state government affairs firm in the state of Ohio. We help nonprofit organizations, local governments, and companies uh, secure funding for their projects, whether they be technology projects, advanced energy projects, other advanced uh, technology projects. Uh, And then we, we work with them to secure other funding in the budget at the federal government and state government levels. We have secured over the last 20 years, roughly, about $800 million in federal and state government funding. Why is that important for county executive? Well, I know where the money is. So when we send our tax dollars to Washington, D.C. and Columbus, we don't get back our fair share. We we have the wrong leadership in office right now. They don't know how to access that money. I spent the last 20 years accessing federal and state funds for my clients. I did the same thing for the citizens of Cuyahoga County. So when I talk about big ideas for the county, we'll fund those using tax dollars from Washington and Columbus. We won't have to use our local tax dollars for those good ideas.
1: Well it certainly sounds you're accustomed to looking at big numbers, and what's the budget for Cuyahoga County per year?
3: So if you look at the general fund plus the health and human services levies, it's about seven hundred and fifty million dollars. If you add in all of the federal funding for infrastructure and uh, health and human services programs, it's about $1.7 billion. So it's, uh, it's a large government, uh, not always visible to the citizens of the county, but we do a lot in county government. We focus on abused children, on marriages in crisis, families in crisis, uh, adults who are seniors who are being neglected, People are addicted to drugs or to opiates, which, of course, has been a major problem the last 10 years in Cuyahoga County. Uh, We run the infrastructure of the county, so that's the prosecutor's office, the jail, the public defender. Uh, We manage a lot of county roads. The voting system, voting is done through uh, the county here, Cuyahoga County. So it really is an important, critical foundation of our community, and I think we need better leadership to run that critical uh, foundation of our community. We've had the same guy in office now for seven years. Um, the last four have been particularly bad, and I think it's time for a change, bring in new leadership, new visionary leadership to lead us um, for the next eight years.
1: Well, when we watch political offices or even corporate offices, uh, we could tell when people become stale and things need new ideas and uh, sort of a, a refresh button to be pushed. Uh, what, what are some of the
3: things that you see you can change and improve upon here in, in Cuyahoga County? Well, the first thing is uh, emphasizing investing in people, not in government. So the current county executive has grown the government dramatically since he became the executive in 2015, both in terms of the budget and in terms of the personnel. I have a d- different vision. Um, I'd like to reduce the size of county government to the budget, and I would offer early, early, voluntary retirement programs to county employees. There are today about a thousand who are eligible for a voluntary early retirement. If we can get them to retire early, that'll be a thousand fewer positions in county government. If we bring back some number, uh, we hire other people to fill those positions. I don't think we need a thousand. This is government after all, so it's probably overstaffed. We bring back four, maybe 500 people to fill those positions. Now we have 500 fewer positions in county government, that saves about $50 million a year. That's money that we can invest back in the community in job-creating projects, in private housing projects, and community development projects. So without raising anybody's taxes, we can invest in our community and address issues like unemployment, homelessness, hunger, poverty, and crime.
1: Yeah, you know, a big, a big question for anyone stepping into a new position, which is really an existing position that's been operating for a while, is to uh, come in and look at, like you are just mentioning, getting rid of the fat as far as excess employees. How do you go about determining whether or not they're running lean and mean or there's excess fat to cut? And, and how do you go through a process to carefully winnow down the number of uh, employees
3: you're going to have? So back in 2010, when the first time they had the, the new form of county government, they appointed a commission of nonprofit leaders, government leaders, and business leaders to look at county government to see where the savings could be realized. They came up with $70 million a year in savings. Now, that's probably extreme. Maybe we're not anywhere near $70 million, but maybe we're at 30 or 40 or $50 million. So I would dust off that report and take a look at it again and implement some of the things they had in mind Um and then I would look at every department and, see, and look at the number of frontline workers to managers. And I suspect that we have too many managers in county government. That tends to be the case in big institutions like universities, cities, counties, and other large uh, organizations, organizations and institutions. So I would look at the <clears throat> frontline worker ratio to manager ratio and bring in uh, a more reasonable number uh uh, ratio between those two positions so there's one department in kaya county that i'm aware of where you've got um 27 workers and nine managers that seems extreme one example we'll try and ferret out all the other ones that are like that
1: i was going to ask are there any departments that you have uh, at least preliminarily targeted uh, to get a, a better review
3: so we'll look at all of them. You know, I want to get into government. Uh, the election's next November. Presuming I win, that will give me two months before I would take over office in January of 2023 to really do a deep dive in the county government and find out where we can uh, lean out the government uh, and save the taxpayers money and create a source of funding to invest in the community to try and solve these age-old problems that I mentioned.
1: Well, it sounds like a plan already for a, a, a nice, uh, smooth transition. Uh, so you're already thinking of uh, transitioning into into the new position, I hear from what you're saying. I am.
3: So you know, so I was there a long time ago, right? I was there as county commissioner, so I really know county government, um, and I've been involved with the county government over, uh, over the years since then. So I'm familiar with the structure and the programs and departments in county government. So I bring that to the table that a lot of other candidates wouldn't bring. Uh, and because the fact that I was a commissioner versus county executive doesn't really change. The county government does the same thing now that it did when I was county commissioner. So I bring uh-huh. that experience. Um, I've got a vision for the county. I'm calling it Cuyahoga 2030. It focuses in these crucial areas that I mentioned to try and solve our plaguing problems in Cuyahoga County. And I've got a backbone. So I'm, I will stand up. I will enforce the rules. That the current executive does not enforce, particularly when it comes to procurement, um, often skirts the the uh, competitive bid requirements, gives contracts to his friends as opposed to going through a competitive bid process, uh, and cuts out minority contractors from many opportunities, which I think is wrong. So well, I, I, I agree, will enforce uh,
1: Lee. Let's sit, let me interrupt for just a moment. We're going to take a short break. Sure, that's uh, great. We're talking to Lee Weingart, former Cuyahoga County Commissioner and now candidate for. Cuyahoga County Executive. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Lee after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. I can't get no I can't
0: get no...
1: Welcome back, to Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. This is our final segment for this evening. Uh, and again, thank you for joining us. We're talking to Lee Weingard, former Cuyahoga County Commissioner and candidate for Cuyahoga County Executive uh, in 2022. Uh, Lee, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Thank you, Nick. You know, we, we talked about uh, some of your plans. It sounds like you're about to hit the ground running and you have another year to go. Uh, but uh, that's good to hear. It's refreshing and robust, as they say. Uh, problems in Cuyahoga County uh problems that we've been looking at over the last years is the county jail. We, we've had a number of deaths and lawsuits against the county because of the mismanagement of the jail. Uh, we've had the jail director sentenced to prison over the mismanagement of the jail. What is your take on the jail, and what do you think is going to happen?
3: So this all goes back to Armin Budish, the current executive, his plan to turn the jail into a profit center. He wanted to have all of the how prisoners do you, how do you from turn, the suburbs.
1: How do you turn a jail to the private center? Here's what you do. Center? So
3: you, you uh, have all the prisoners come in from the suburbs, and you house them in one jail downtown, the county jail. You charge the the suburbs $185 per night to hold their prisoners. So what did you do? The current capacity of the jail is about 1,700. At one point, he had almost 2,400 people in the jail because he brought in all the suburban prisoners. So he was driving up his revenue, by overcrowding the jail. Then he was reducing his expenses by understaffing the jail. So they were not giving the health screenings that are required. They were not taking the precautions that are necessary when you book someone into the county jail. He was warned by the nurse supervisor who worked for Metro Health that if he continued this practice, people would start dying. Uh, Six weeks later, the first person died in the county prison. Then people two through seven died, making eight total deaths in the course of about four months. What did Armin do? Did he try and solve the problem of the death in the county jail? No, he didn't. He got the nurse supervisor who warned him, got him fired. That nurse supervisor has a multi-million dollar lawsuit against Cuyahoga County for retribution uh, and civil rights violations. So now Armin Budish wants to build a one billion dollar jail. He's trying to suggest that the deaths in the jail were caused by the physical structure. Where we know they were caused by his mismanagement, his inattention, uh, and his disregard of human life. This one billion dollar jail will be uh, 2,400 uh, inmates, which I think is is big by too big by at least 50 percent. Last year, during COVID, there were a thousand people in the county jail. If a 1,000 worked in 2020, it works in 2021 and in the years going forward. What we need is more thoughtful diversion programs. So if you have a mental health challenge or a drug addiction challenge, you should never be in the county jail. We should get you into treatment right away to get you back on your feet. If you're arrested for a nonviolent offense, you should never be in the county jail. We should find a different way. Um, to take care of you. So if we are more creative with our diversion programs, we won't need to build a jail the size Armin wants to build, 2,400 people, and we won't have to spend a billion dollars of county taxpayer money to do it. So I have a fundamental difference when it comes to criminal justice and crime than Armin Buddha shows. He basically says build a big jail and throw them all in it. I say let's find more economical more creative ways to deal uh, with people who've been arrested.
1: Is the, uh, the current jail plan for the new larger jail going to continue to have the, the, uh, the work plan where you're going to have suburban prisoners come in and uh, pay for uh, their housing and make, make money for the county? Is that still part of the plan?
3: So, you know, because of what happened, the 12 people dying in the county jail under Armin and supervision, many suburbs are trying to uh, bring back their own jails. So I met with folks in Euclid recently. They'd like to uh, get their jail back online because they don't trust the county with their prisoners, which makes a lot of sense. Um, Other cities have jails that they could reopen. Um, I think, you know, regionalizing jails would be a better idea than what Armin did, which was to bring them all downtown. Um, You know, some people arrested in communities don't need to come downtown. Um, to be in the county jail, if they're arrested, again, on a nonviolent offense particularly. So um, I think you're going to see a movement away from centralizing the jail because of what happened to the 12 people that died in the county jail, and I applaud that. um, The mayors who want to have their own jails, uh, I think, should be able to do that.
1: Uh, Tell me about the method of paying for this jail. Where is the money going to
3: come from? So what they've suggested, so there was a temporary sales tax, one-quarter percent put in place to cover the cost of the convention center. So back in 2007, that was passed by the then county commissioners, myself not included. That was long after I had been county commissioner. It was put on for 20 years to pay for the convention center. So it burns off in the year 2027. What Armin Budish has said he will do is extend that temporary sales tax forever, forever, to pay for his new jail. That tax generates about $50 million a year in revenue for Kyra County. If you're going to build the jail Armand has in mind, it costs you a billion dollars. That means that the next 20 years, from 2027 to 2047, that tax will only be used to build a new, too-large county jail. My view, much different than Armand's is, if you want to extend that sales tax, go to the people, get their permission, and then you can extend it. And if you extend it, don't use it to build a jail. Use it for jo- for programs that create jobs, create private housing opportunities, and new community development. But for goodness sakes, not a new billion-dollar jail.
1: Well, the election for a uh, county executive is not until next year, next November, ultimately uh what is this project going to be up for approval before that time or will, will there be anything that uh could be done or are we how far along on the way are we toward the new jail
3: unfortunately there are a long way way there are long ways you know toward getting it done um armand probably has control of the county council he'll get the six votes that he needs out of 11 to extend the tax forever um i'm hoping that when i become county executive i can stop this project and i will stop the project i will not uh If I can stop it, I will not permit a billion dollars to be spent building a new county jail.
1: Well, that's something we have to wait and watch and see what's going to happen. Uh, Over the next year, while we're waiting for the election, what what do you expect to happen with the county? Are we going to be in good shape, bad shape, right road, wrong road?
0: Well, we're in pretty
3: bad shape right now. So the new two-year budget was just released last week. Uh, Not surprisingly, the county executive, Armin Budish, is using budget sleight of hand, uh, chicanery, if you will, to try and show that he can balance the budget, which he's never done. So since 2015, when he became executive, until this year, 2021, he has not balanced a single county budget running over $100 million of deficits over the course of those seven years. It's a remarkable record of failure when it comes to balancing the county budget. When I was county commissioner, even though we were facing a $114 million loss, we balanced our budget every year. So again, I'm responsible with the taxpayer's dollars. I balance budgets. I don't spend more than I need to. That was what I did as county commissioner. Armin loves to spend tax dollars, loves to grow the government, and he runs outrageously unbalanced county budgets.
1: You're already starting your campaign. Uh, What are you hearing from people out on the street?
3: Are they aware of all these issues? So, you know, there is a general understanding of what the county government does, but there's a better understanding that the community is sick, that things are not going well. So we're recovering from the pandemic, no thanks to county government. In fact, Last year, uh, the county got $215 million in CARES Act funding to help the community recover from the pandemic. Armand Budish used two-thirds of that, $125 million, to cover the county's payroll. Very little went into the community to nonprofit organizations, small businesses, restaurants, families who were in crisis. Nope. Armand used that money to cover his payroll at the county. So there's a sense that things are not good. Cleveland is the biggest poor city in America. Uh, Cleveland is the least broadband connected city in America. It's a bad place to start a business, uh, and it's a bad place to live if you live in the city of Cleveland, and even some of the first-ring suburbs now. So there's desperation. Um, There is an opening understanding that somebody new can do a better job. When I talk about my vision, my Congo 2030 vision um, with people, the voters, I give them, I tell them what I want to do. I say, I'm a Republican. They said, that doesn't matter. If you do the things that you said you're going to do, we'll vote for you. So I've come across very few people who are supporting Armin Budish or, for that matter, any Democrat for county executive. And I've come across a lot of open-minded voters who think that change is time for change. We need new leadership in county government.
1: Well, it sounds like you're very enthusiastic, very fresh, and like the term I used earlier would bring a robust attitude to the whole look at government. So, Lee, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and I wish you Dick, well. Thanks
3: very much. It was great to be here tonight.
1: My pleasure, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So, between now and then, have a great week. Good night, and stay healthy and safe. Good night.
0: And I sat and watched. Zanzibar Sunset Sat and drank My fresh mint tea With nothing to do Until morning Not only my mind